There are many things in life that have what you might call a key ingredient in it. And if you don't have that key ingredient, it ceases to be what it is. For example, chocolate chip cookies. If you don't put chocolate chips in your chocolate chip cookies, what have you got? You can call it whatever you want, but it's not a chocolate chip cookie. It would just be a cookie. If you were to go to the World Cup championship game, wherever that's going to be, soccer, and there was no ball, what do you have? Got 150,000 people gathered together to watch a bunch of skilled guys run around the field with, with no aim and no goal, literally. You need a ball to play soccer. Without it, it ceases to be soccer. It's something else, right? Um, one of the museums in Boston that we have not yet attended but we'd like to is the Museum of Fine Arts. <clears throat> I've heard mixed reviews. I hear some people say, it's the most boring place I've ever been in my life. I've heard other people say, oh, you've got to go. It's going to take you a year to get through all this stuff and enjoy everything that's there. And I, you know, one, one day we'll go, and we'll see what's in the Museum of Fine Arts. You take artwork out of the museum, what have you got? An empty building, right? And, and you understand this. There are some things that are just foundational and key to make it work. There is a key ingredient in the church. There is a key ingredient in your walk with God, in your Christian life. A thing which, if removed, would cause the church to cease being a church. Which, if removed, would make it absolutely impossible for you to please God in any way. And it may not be what you think. I'm, I'm, going, I'm going way simple here this morning but hopefully profound as you think about it. Um, you take this building away from us, we're still a church. We can still meet. You take the overhead projector away, we can still worship. You take the piano and the instruments out of the equation, we're still a church and we're still, we're still able to please God. Stop having a nursery and put the kids back in here, we're still a church. You know, there's certain things you could ask, you know, what is it about Fellowship Bible Church that makes it, you know, unique or whatever. And you can name all these things. And, you know, it's not even the expositional preaching of God's word, which hopefully I'll do this morning. I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 1 and 2. Paul says in his letter to Corinth, the church at Corinth, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let those words sink in. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now Paul was writing to a church that was in some ways flourishing. They were exercising their spiritual gifts. There were people coming to the Lord. Doctrinally, they were okay. They understood uh, the, the basic doctrines of God and of salvation. But they had been fragmented by divisions. And we know this right from the very beginning of the book. Paul was writing to try to help the situation that had developed within this church where people just could not get along with each other and they were fighting over things that mostly weren't worth fighting for or fighting about. Paul had been with them for 18 months at this church, planting, watering, discipling, helping them to grow in the Lord and helping them to become established as a church. And no sooner had he gone But the devil seems to have stepped in and tried to unravel what he had built. They were a church, but they were a divided church. They believed the doctrines of God and Jesus Christ, but they were splintered and ready to come apart at the seams. So, if you were Paul and you were writing to this church, how would you help them? If you, do you know people who can't get along with each other? Raise your hand. Do you know people who are fighting, who are struggling, don't want to offer forgiveness, holding on to things that have happened in the past, bitterness grows in the heart? Have you met anyone like that? How about you, me? How do you deal with that? How do you help people who can't get along? Well, you go buy a book, right? You go to the library, or better yet, Google it. How do I get along with my spouse? Just read what's out there. Go to a psychologist. Say, hey, I'm having a real problem with, with forgiveness. I can't seem to forgive this person. Tell me what to do. Tell me how I should behave. I want you to help me. So Paul is here. He's, he's got a church with major problems. It wasn't just that they couldn't get along. There was sexual immorality going on. They were taking each other to court over not being able to settle these little issues that they had amongst themselves. They really didn't understand the resurrection very well. They had a problem understanding marriage and how it worked in in the current uh, situation that they were in. On and on it goes. There was a lot of, and and as you go through 1 Corinthians, he hit these issues head on, every one of them. They had even written to him and asked him, what do we do about this? And so this letter is a response to that. So, what if you were Paul? How would you help them if you knew that this church had this group, this group, and this group, and they all thought they were right and they couldn't get along with each other? What would you say? Well, I did what any good modern uh, person would do, and I did Google it. How do you get along with people? That's what I Googled. And here's what I came up with. Here's, Here's the advice that you'll get from our modern psychologists. Number one, and as I go through them, you're, gonna, you're probably going to nod your head and go, yeah, that's a good idea. Keep your cool. Don't get embroiled in a heated argument. 
Good advice? Sure. Keep your cool. Don't get angry. Number two, think before you react. Don't just react to what's happening and let yourself go. Think what you're going to say before you say it, and you'll save yourself the trouble of not getting along. Three, don't take things personally. That's a hard one, right? You disagree with somebody, they disagree with you, they tell you they disagree with you, and you go, oh, that hurts, I don't like that, I don't like you anymore, I can't, I can't live with the fact that you disagree with me about this thing or the other. And so the, the, the concept here is, well, don't take it personally. You know, argue about what you're arguing about, but don't, bring it, don't make it personal. Four, look within yourself, and if you're guilty, admit it. If you're wrong, admit it. Be willing to admit you're wrong. Five, dial it down. Keep your ego in check. Don't let emotion rule or run what you're gonna what you're gonna say to another person. Six, if you can't get along after you've tried, just distance yourself from that person then. <clears throat> just get away from the situation. Drop it, leave it, go somewhere else. Seven, evaluate the other person for a mental disorder. Maybe they have a problem. Maybe they have attention deficit disorder, and they're just not able to listen to you all the way. Maybe they have some kind of disobedience disorder, and they, maybe they have, and so evaluate the other person. And if they have a problem, tell somebody and help them. Eesh. Eight, build up the other person's sense of importance. Help them to feel like what they're saying is important. Nine, eliminate anything negative. Just be positive. Don't talk about the negative stuff. Just talk about the positive stuff. Ten, don't try to reform the other person. And I could have probably gone, come up with 25. What do you think about those? Pretty good, right? Some of them. I didn't agree with all of them. And none of these are really bad advice, but all of them will eventually come up short. You know why? There's a key ingredient missing in it. You know why the gospel is so important? This is why the gospel is... What I want to do is to take the theology of the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ and what we believe about salvation and bring it down out of the sky and put it underneath our feet and show you how important it really is. Because there is power there that affects everything in our life. There is power in the gospel itself. And we're going to go through it this morning and see it. All those pieces of advice are great, but they're missing something. I laugh sometimes when couples come and they say, we're struggling. <clears throat> Can you help fix my husband? Can you help fix my wife? And the first thing I tell them is, or ask them, how's your walk with God? Are you reading your Bible? Do you have a prayer life? Are you listening to the Spirit of God teach you? Because without that, I know what's going to happen, which is basically nothing. I'll teach them some biblical principles. They won't apply them, and then they'll go somewhere else because the Bible didn't help them. I want you to do a little exercise with me in 1 Corinthians. I want you to turn back to the first verse of chapter 1, 
I was going to do this by having you stand, but I know your legs are probably not up to it. So I'm going to have you do it by raising your hand. And I want you to go through this exercise with me. And every time you see the word Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus or any form of it, just raise your hand. Okay? And then after we're done, you tell me what Paul was writing about. Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. Did you get the hymn? You were enriched in him. That was Jesus Christ. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. How many times in ten verses? Ten. And what's his next phrase? Now I exhort you, brethren, by what? by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. So now he's going to start attacking the problem. What is he saying is the key ingredient to it? It's Christ. He comes to them and he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. Paul is an apostle of Christ. The church is sanctified by Jesus Christ. The grace of God and peace, which they were lacking, comes through Jesus Christ. Their knowledge and speech are enriched through Jesus Christ. They received the testimony of Christ. They will one day stand blameless before Christ in the day of Christ, and they should all agree with one another because of Christ. Suffice it to say that Paul wanted his readers to understand that you cannot live the Christian life without understanding that Jesus Christ is the key ingredient to it. I've said this before, I I observe this interesting phenomenon in our day where when I hear people, especially talking to those outside the church, it's very easy to talk about God. Do you believe in God? Yes, I do. Let me tell you, let me share something about what God's doing in my life. Or the Lord, another kind of benign word. Let me share you what the Lord's doing with me. But as soon as you mention Jesus Christ, what happens? All of a sudden, there's a little wall that goes up. You can feel it. And I know if you've talked with anybody about Jesus Christ, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Why do you think that is? It's the offense of the cross. And we're going to talk about that. Yeah, what are you saying? Yeah. It's something they don't understand, for sure. But we cannot exist as a church without Christ in him crucified. That the, God, the person and the work of Jesus Christ forms the basis for everything that we believe and everything that we do, <clears throat> even though we may be hesitant to talk about it. 
Let's take a quick look at the, the verse itself. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech. Now, I know everybody likes to hear a good speaker. I do too. The two speakers that we had at the marriage conference last weekend were phenomenal. One of them was a black guy from Atlanta, and he was my favorite. He was a wordsmith. He was able to take a principle and apply it in a way and and share um, personal experiences in such a way that I was just right there with him, everything that he said. And you've been in places like that, right? Where where you've been to a very talented uh, speaker, somebody who really knows how to deliver a good message. Paul says, I didn't come with that. I was unconcerned about what you would think about me as a speaker when I came to you. Why? Because the message is more important than how it's delivered. He wanted them to get the message. I didn't come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom. And here he's speaking of man's wisdom. The kind of wisdom that was so highly respected in that Greek culture. Um, we have many names for it, I guess, in our culture. I mean, where does, where does our wisdom come from? It comes from maybe a tenured professor at Harvard University or uh, from being politically correct in our thinking or... Uh, something like that, to, to be modern or postmodern as it is today. It's the wisdom that is offered by the world that would put human beings on the throne and deny Jesus Christ. That's the wisdom he didn't come with. But he says in verse 2, I determined something. This wasn't a, a second-hand thought. This wasn't an afterthought of Paul. He determined this before he went, that when he went, there was something he was going to do. It was a resolution that was taken up deliberately. And it wasn't that Paul didn't understand the wisdom of the Greeks. He did. He probably could have debated with the best of them. Paul was quite a debater himself. And he could have used that and taken and borrowed from that and come to them with the rhetoric and the logic of the Greeks, but he was convinced that it didn't have spiritual value that they needed. So he determined, secondly, to know nothing. This is an all-inclusive statement to show the utter worthlessness of every system of thought, no matter how complex or popular, whether they're traditions, philosophical wisdom, as they had in their day, the mysteries, they call it, the poets, or any other purveyor of spiritual thought, he determined ahead of time to know nothing among them but Jesus Christ and him crucified. So here it is. This is the pinnacle of Paul's ministry. This is what he was all about. When he went from town to town and brought the message of salvation to these people, he preached Christ to them. The person and the work of Christ, who Jesus is and what he did. This is the reason he writes 1 Corinthians. All the answers to the questions they had asked him about the problems they were having in the church are all concerned with Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so you might ask the question then, how's that work? I can't get along with my husband. You're telling me the gospel is going to have an impact on that? Yep. 
And I'll hopefully, by the end of this, make that connection for you and, and show you how that works. Jesus, the person and work of Jesus Christ, Jesus and his deity and his humanity and glory, what he accomplished by his death on the cross and how that happened, this is the key ingredient with whom we should be most concerned in our life. And this was not the only place that Paul wrote this. Earlier in chapter 1, he says, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's what we need, right? I have tried my whole life to be a self-corrector, and I fail every time I try. I know what I should do, but I end up thinking something else and doing something else. I need the power of God to live in a way that is holy and righteous. I can't do it on my own. To those of us who are being saved, the preaching of the cross is the power of God. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, this is a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God are in it. In Galatians 6, he says, may it be that I, sh- that I should, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Philippians 3.3, he says, We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Why is this so important? Why is knowing, understanding, trusting in, believing Jesus Christ and his crucifixion such an important thing? How is it relevant to me? Well, what I would like to do is to get a little bit doctrinal with you. I'm going to move right through it and then try to open that door at the end and show how all those truths flow right into your life, right into your daily life and my daily life, and how it should have such an impact on how we think and what we do. So let's consider some things about the crucifixion and about Jesus Christ himself. One, the crucifixion was ordered by God himself. This is nothing light. It is, the, it is the key, it's the, it's the crux of all history, was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He was delivered over, it says in Acts 2, by the predetermined counsel of God. It wasn't an accident. He didn't just die a martyr's death. It didn't just happen because they didn't like him and they wanted to get rid of him. God ordained this to happen. It was resolved before time. It was decreed and enacted in heaven. And this is why... He is called the the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God had this plan in mind before creation. He was made sin, not by us, but by God's determination. If you listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, that's God, made him to be sin for us. It was an act of God's sovereignty, Jesus said in, in John 14, 31, As the Father gave me commandments, so I do. In John 12, 49, Jesus says, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. 
And in Philippians 2, he says, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This was God's plan to do this, which makes it important, which makes us have to prick up our ears and say, well, what is it about this that is so important that God would do it? It was also an act of God's supreme love. You cannot divorce the love of God from the gospel. In Genesis, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So when God created men to begin with, there was goodness in the heart of men. By the time we get through the fall in in Genesis 3 and then to the flood in Genesis 6, the condemnation of man was complete because he says every thought and intent of his heart is only evil continually. You know, we are helplessly and hopelessly lost without Christ. There's nothing that you and I can do to reconcile our relationship to God. We're not up to the task. It's an impossible thing. There's none righteous, no, not one. There are none who seek after God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we can't do anything to rectify that. Jesus said, no one can come to the Father, or no one can come to me except the Father draw him. Uh, Paul said in another part of the Corinthian letter, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. The mind, he says in Romans, set on the flesh is hostile toward God and does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not able to do so. But the gospel breaks through all that. And God's love supersedes his judgment. And he sends Jesus to the cross because he knows that's the only way that you can have your sins forgiven and be reconciled to God. In this is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for sins. It was also an act of God's justice. We know that God is the great law giver. He's the creator of the universe. He's the judge of it. He's the ruler of every person and everything that exists on the earth because he created it. And he rightly demands punishment for the transgression of the law. This is another one of those things that when you're witnessing to somebody, it's like, oh, I got to say this to them. God is going to judge your sin. How many people like to hear that? Nobody. I defy you to listen to talk radio, any of it, and hear the word sin. You won't. People are embarrassed by it. They're afraid of it. And they don't want to talk about it. And I guarantee you, if I called up on talk radio today and, and, and I talked about Aaron Hernandez and I said, well, he sinned. The guy was like, What? What are you talking about? What are you, some one of those Christians? And he wouldn't, he probably wouldn't give me the time of day. Because sin is offensive. Why? It's because we're sinful. That's the reason. None of us like to hear about or think about the fact that our sin is going to be judged by a holy God and it's deserved. And so the act of crucifying Jesus Christ was an act of justice. It satisfied the righteous demands of God on your life and your sin. 
and on mine. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. God takes the punishment upon himself to bear our iniquity in his own body on the tree. And he becomes responsible for our transgression. What a thought. And Jesus Christ, the person who was crucified, consider him. Who was he? Jesus is God. He's the creator of the universe. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the one to whom every knee will one day bow. And what did he do? He emptied himself. He humbled himself. And he came down from heaven to earth, took on the form of a man. Would you want to be in God? Would you want to take on the form of a man? Not me. I'm, I'm stuck in this. If I could break free right now, I would. If I could be more than one place at a time, I would. If I could just have knowledge and know things, I would. I would, I would not want to have gone from the glory that Jesus Christ had with the Father to be born as a baby? No way. But he did. And why did he do it? Because he loved you, because he was obedient to God, and because he humbled himself to make this happen. <clears throat> he took the form of a servant. The king took the form of a servant. The Lord who gave us life shed his own blood and gave his life. This was God's own son, the creator who did this, who stooped to do this. And he did it willingly. We talked about this recently at the Good Friday service. He willingly consented and willingly accepted what was to come his way. He took that cup of suffering and he drank it freely. Jesus said, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. Paul said, the son of God loved me and gave himself for me. It's the essence of the gospel. My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. I will do whatever you want me to do. Whatever it costs, whatever the pain. And speaking of the pain, we could spend a whole morning on this. His suffering was great, and it wasn't just the suffering on the cross. Jesus knew his appointed hour. Even that in and of itself, how many of you would want to know the day that you're going to die? Not me. I've had this conversation with people and asked them, and everybody I ask, they say the same thing. If you were given the choice to know when your death was coming, would you want to know it? <clears throat> no. It changes everything, right? Jesus carried that with him throughout his life. He knew the hour of his death. He knew when it was coming. It was a shameful death. It was publicly shameful. It was a death that was meant for slaves and criminals. As he say in Isaiah, he was numbered among the transgressors. Hebrews 2.2 says he endured, or 12.2 says he endured the shame, despising the cross. Or despising the shame. He endured the cross, despising the shame, the shame of the cross. 
And the pain was enduring, no question about it. He knew he was going to die. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends. He was falsely accused by the authorities. We all love to be falsely accused by, you know, by people, right? He was spit on, beaten. His beard was ripped out. They put a crown of thorns, thorns on his head. They ripped his back open with the scourging. And then they put him on a cross and put nails through his hands and his feet. You think all of that was pleasant? Jesus said, don't you know I could have called upon my father and he would have given me 10,000 angels to come, legions of angels to come to my aid. But he didn't. It was a curse that was placed by God on him. Galatians 3.13, he was made a curse for us. And beyond the physical and emotional torment of all this, he hung on the cross and said, my God... My God, why have you forsaken me? As God turns his back on the only begotten son who was bearing the weight of the sin of the world on himself. Jesus Christ, think of him. Think about his life. Think about his attitude. Think about what he did and why he did it. Third, the crucifixion of Christ results in incredible spiritual fruit and blessing for us. We could spend a whole year talking about this. God's wrath is satisfied. You can go to bed tonight in Christ Jesus knowing that there is no condemnation toward you. I don't know. There's nothing more awesome than that. To know that if I were to die right now, I would be immediately ushered into God's presence and he would not hold any of my sins against me because they were paid for. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to give. It's a wonderful thing to receive. Romans 3 says about Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, and that's a word that means satisfaction. Propitiation in his blood through faith for the demonstration of his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. His sacrifice was accepted by God. So that if you believe in it, it will be applied to you. God has a kindness toward men, yes, but not toward their sin. Their sin, he hates. He has mercy on men, but not for transgression. Sin must be paid for. The soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. But because Jesus was sinless and perfect, without blemish or spot, God could receive the sacrifice made. That's why we can't. We're not in that category. And because Jesus was infinite and eternal, God could render his sacrifice sufficient for all people of all time. So that it comes right down to us today. Guys, we are no longer under the law. Do you know what a blessing that is? The law is nothing but weight and sorrow. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. Okay, I'll try. You didn't do it. Smack. You did this again. Smack. That's what the law does. It smacks us around. Jesus redeemed us from the law. He brought us out from underneath that curse. We are no longer under it. We are dead to the law. Our guilt has been removed. In whom we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sin. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us the just for the unjust. Satan has been dethroned and destroyed, our, our arch enemy. 
We're being sanctified day by day. And we could go on and on the blessings that come out of the gospel, out of the crucifixion of Christ to us. So what's the point of all this? Let me wrap this up. How can you seriously think about all of that? How can you seriously think about what God did for you and you receive it and then turn around and hate your brother? How can you do it? How can you contemplate the fact that God ordered the death of Jesus Christ for you and then lie about your taxes? How can you consider the eternal love of God who gave you the only possible way to be forgiven and then you take that way and then let your life get wrapped up in pornography? How's that possible? The gospel affects everything that we do. It, it speaks to the very issues of our heart. It speaks to love. It speaks to forgiveness. It speaks to kindness. It speaks to gentleness. It speaks to our relationship to other people. It's, and that is why when, when Paul wrote this book, it was Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. You want to fix your problems? Run to him. Because in the gospel, you will find the answer for every problem that you ever have. Because you know where your problems come from? Sin. And you know what he did at the cross? He destroyed it. You want to know how to overcome sin? Look at him. Watch what he did. Watch how he humbled himself. Oh, I can't humble myself. I've got to stand up for what's, what's mine. Then you don't understand the gospel. How can you meditate on the fact that you are no longer under the law, that you've been released from its curse, and then get all mad when somebody cuts you off in traffic? You're putting the law back on them. You see how it affects our attitude, our life? The power for not only salvation, but for everything that we do as a Christian is in the gospel. Read it. Look at it. Think about it. It's all there. This is why Paul brings it up so often when he's correcting behavior. And you look not just here in Corinthians, but I, I challenge you to look at the writings of Paul. And as he is correcting behavior in their life, it's all in the name of Jesus Christ, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I maintain that people cannot be helped without it. And like I said before, I still chuckle you know, when people come and say, help me. And I bring them face to face with Christ and I say, here's the one person in the world who can help you. He loves you beyond what your spouse could ever love you. He sacrificed himself for you, for your sin, and he gave you redemption. He gave you an out when there was no out. What are you going to do with him? How are you going to respond to him? How do you deal with lust? How do you deal with pride? How do you deal with fear? How do you deal with anxiety? How do you learn how to forgive? How do you learn how to love? How do you learn how to be humble? How do you learn how to be kind, to be self-controlled in life? Go to Christ. And so I challenge you this morning, if you haven't recently, go back into the Gospels and read about Jesus Christ. Learn about him. That's what Paul was teaching 
the church to do, to learn about Christ. Read what he said. Listen to what he said and let it impact you. Think through what he did when he gave himself on that cross for you. And then ask God to let the power that exists in that gospel change your life, and it will. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all of these truths that on the one hand are very simple. To know that we are sinful and that you loved us and sent your son to die for our sins is a simple thought, a simple substitution, him for us. And yet the depth of that, Father, is unbelievable. To begin to think about what happened there at the cross. To think about what Jesus was willing to go through and why. To think about the forgiveness that he offered, even as he was hanging on the cross, to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To be willing to sacrifice himself, to be willing to even come to the earth in the first place and and take the form of a man, shows the depth of his love and what love really looks like. Shows the depth of forgiveness and what forgiveness really looks like. Lord, help us to not just ignore what you have done and just come up with these quick phrases, oh, I can't forgive. I could never love that person. I hate that person. Lord, help us to not be that way. Help us to let the person and the work of Jesus Christ determine how we live. Because if we belong to you, that's the way it should be. Help us, Lord, to be submissive, humble toward your word, and let it have a real impact on our our life as we live it. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Want to take over?